Hello and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan and I've got my two co-hosts with me, Rob. Hello, how are you? And Anthony. Well, hello. How is everybody doing tonight? Good. Doing good, thank you. How about you, Alan? Wonderful. So on this episode, we are going to be building our Mount Rushmore of rock. And basically what we're going to be doing is our Mount Rushmore is going to have five faces on it instead of just four. And we are going to be picking uh, or at least nominating uh, a, a choice for a guitarist, bass player, keyboardist, vocalist, and drummer to go onto our respective Mount Rushmore's. So let's get started. Um, how did you guys approach putting your list together? There are like there were like eight lists, and I scrapped them. Um, <laughs> and I tried. So first, I tried to do ones that I didn't think you or Anthony would do, just for the sake of variety. Right, um, and I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and then I also tried to go by um, artists that had a profound effect, not just on me, you know, as a fan but also on current music or other artists and contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. uh, that's about it. And I just tried, to, I didn't really put a boundary up. I just tried to think of like, when I say great guitarist, who do I think of? Or when I right. say great, and I kind of went from there. Um, right. But yeah, the big thing was just trying to steer clear of you and Anthony because I didn't want to. Because you knew that we had potential for crossover. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm pretty sure Bowie and Freddie Mercury were going to be on, like, everybody else's. So let's, like, okay, let's try to steer well, away from that. We'll know. see. We'll see. Well, there I mean, you know, there are some parallel threads that I right. wanted to try to, you know, for the sake right. of making it interesting. Very so, true. Yeah. Well, I originally took the approach of coming up with two lists. One that I thought was kind of the obvious. And then a second list that was slightly less obvious. And then as I started thinking about it, I realized that my obvious list wasn't quite what my heart was telling me. So I know I showed you guys my original thinking a few hours ago, and uh, I ended up mixing it up from that. So nice. what you're going to hear me say are probably names that I already sh uh, shared with you, but not necessarily um, the ones in the right places from what we discussed earlier. And that was an atrocious sentence. I apologize. Well, that's okay. So basically what you're saying is that you've nominated a guitarist for like best drummer. And... No, 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 oh, not at okay. all. Okay. Well, there nothing, are, there are um, some complications where people play drums and keyboards. And... Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, my, my, so you, my could, you could put Prince in every category. Yes. Yeah. My, my runner up in the drummer category is also a renowned singer as well as a renowned drummer. So... Yeah. Right, nice. right. Now I, I think he's a much better drummer than he is a singer. Oh, uh, 100% agree on that. All right, so let's get started. Anthony, go ahead and kick us off with your guitarist that's going to go onto your Mount Rushmore. So the guitarist I am picking is David Gilmore of Pink Floyd fame, um, yes. followed up by his solo career. And... Candidly, I ended up going with him just because I think he is responsible for the greatest guitar solo of all time. And that is his solo on the uh, the Pulse live album on the track Comfortably Numb, where he yeah. makes that guitar absolutely cry yeah. in a way that no one else can. The tone, uh, the style is so distinctive. 
I mean, you can hear it's him. And I, I think he's just influenced so many other guitar players. I love what he's done uh, through his career. So for those reasons, he is my choice. And as albums to kind of exemplify that, obviously, I've already mentioned Pink Floyd's live album, Pulse. But additionally, from his solo catalog, Rattle That Lock is a really, really solid album that I would highly, highly recommend as being exemplary of his solo work. What about some of his guest appearances on other artists' recordings? I mean, I always think about that there was a live video where he played on um, he played on stage with Kate Bush and they did Running Up That Hill. Yeah. And that was a phenomenal performance. So Absolutely. if we wanted to talk collabs, that's probably the prime one for Mr. Gilmore. Rob, where did you go so, with this assignment uh, for Best Guitar? I, I also, well, Professor, I also went with um, familiarity as well, you know, just in terms of like, how much do these particular people influence and affect my contemporary musical tastes? So um, I went with Mr. Johnny Marr because like Gilmore, you, when you hear a Johnny Marr guitar, you know, hey, this is a Johnny Marr guitar. Um, it also has that unique uh, ability to make you feel something. Um, like when you hear, please, 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 let me get what I want. Or when you hear um, some of the stuff in electronic, even though there's a lot of synths on it, you still feel a certain emotion and even his solo records, he's like just basically just cutting loose. Right. Uh, this whole recent batch of solo material is kind of like him being so comfortable with his guitar. He's just going to sort of unleash it. Um, and he's kind of doing some new things with it. So that's, that's where I went. I'll tell you what's interesting. I, I had, I kind of had a, a sense of where Anthony would go with his picks. I did not have a, a real, like lead on where you might go, but I, I had a strong feeling that it might be Johnny Marr for guitar player. Um, and mainly, you know, uh, like his stuff on the Smiths is great. I mean, I, uh, yeah. it, you know, it's, I'm, I'm in the group of people that like, I know it's a Smith song when I hear the guitar and not necessarily Morrissey. Um, his stuff on the, the record that he played on is really great. Um, his stuff on the Cribs record really makes it somewhat, moderately interesting band interesting um and then you know i mentioned the electronic stuff his solo records are still great um the terrifying brief career with modest mouse i try to ignore but the fact that he's in modest mouse and the 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 same you know is kind of interesting right and um also he's on a christy mccall record um uh, and a couple other you know he's kind of pops up all over the place and it's really interesting and you know the other thing too is that there is a definite correlation between david gilmar and johnny marr like you could hear the influence of david gilmore in johnny marr's work so i thought try to build on some of the stuff you're doing with a modern thing so that was my thing and those smith's instrumentals that he plays on mm. um are the only reason they are interesting is because he, he the guitar is so great on it it's like he's he's out of the shadow do his own thing and his soundtrack work with Hans Zimmer is just incredible so that's there awesome there terrific pick okay so the, I found the the guitar slot to be probably the most challenging because there are a million different directions that you can go with this and so many different names I mean if you even want to talk about just the people that 
changed the way that musicians and the general public think about the instrument. You know, you've got Hendrix and Van Halen and, you know, a number of other folks. And there's just, I, I kind of had to narrow it down to um, versatility. So I went, and this is probably the only real surprise on my list. I went with Rick Emmett of Triumph. He's a Ooh. classically trained guitarist. He's an amazing player, great singer, a uh, phenomenal songwriter. He had a, a real ability to write both like pop rock songs that became radio hits, but also songs with more complex arrangements that were, you know, kind of practically like prog. They were, they were very much a prog light band. So some of my examples of his playing are, uh, there's a song called Ordinary Man from my absolute favorite Triumph album, Allied Forces. Phenomenal record. Uh, there's a song called Time Goes By on Thunder 7. Both of those feature sort of the more complex arrangements, not the poppy kind of stuff, you know, like Magic Power and Fight the Good Fight, which is, are, they're great songs. I really love those songs and I love them when I hear them on the radio, but I don't think they're the highest um, example of Rick's work. So I'm going with these more complex tunes, Ordinary Man and Time Goes By. And then on most Triumph albums, he does one solo classical piece on each album. So the two that I've picked as examples of those are one called Midsummer's Daydream, which is an amazing, gorgeous song from the album Thunder 7 and A minor etude on Never Surrender. So that's my guitar pick after a lot of deliberation i saw triumph three times live i saw him once the first time was in a uh, kind of a small theater in tampa i saw them on a big stadium show in orlando and then i saw them somewhere else and the funny the, the the i think it was the one uh the, the stadium show in uh in orlando they had to pack up and fly the next day to do the us festival so across the country great show at the us festival as well so i got to technically see that show twice all right so let's move on to bassist anthony who you got for bassist so for bassist i have the one and only tony levin and he's not exactly i mean if, if you're a huge music fan you probably know who tony levin is if you talk to someone off of the street, they'll probably say, who's that? Not realizing that he's played with Lennon, with Stevie Nicks, with <laughs> Pink Floyd, yeah. Bowie, King Crimson. Um, and for me, most notably, Peter Gabriel. Mm -hmm. um, when I think of Tony Levin, I, I think of his work on those Peter Gabriel albums. Predominantly so. I mean, you listen to the bass groove on Sledgehammer and wow, that... Uh, it, it's just it's so cool there's no other way of describing it that it, it's just cool and then the other album i really like his work on is the slightly more modern um and i guess it was gabriel's last um album of original material which was up which is weird to think that that's over 20 years old now um but again he's he's just got such a a warm sound to his bass playing this i really love the other thing I want to give him credit for is his work playing the Chapman stick. I was going to say that same thing. It's not just that the general public might not know who he is. They also will not know that thing that he's playing. Yeah, it's just bonkers. 
Um, <laughs> and it sounds great. You know, I, I, I'm hugely, hugely impressed with anyone who plays a Chapman stick. Um, yeah. I've looked at several videos on YouTube because I've occasionally thought, oh, I'm mediocre at best at bass. I wonder if I could possibly pay, play the Chapman stick. And I looked at it and go, oh, holy hell, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that's too complicated for me. Um, oh, my gosh. But he's just an impressive musician. He's worked with virtually everyone in the business. Um, and, you know, anything he's on, you can guarantee that it's going to have one hell of a baseline on it. Agreed. Um, and I think I'm trying to remember, I think so was the first time that I started to really become aware <laughs> of him. Um, the thing that really sort of hammered him home for me was a couple of years later, he, uh, yes, was going through that weird period where they kind of split into two groups and he played on the Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howell album and does some really, really nice work on that and toured with them on that, on that tour as well. And then he was also unfortunately on their union album, which was when True. the two bands came back together, which yeah. is probably best forgotten. But uh, there is stuff on there that I really like. Well, I mean, it, it's an interesting album in that the two bands each basically recorded half of it. Um, so it's it's a real mixed bag, and it's not as yeah. a whole body. I don't think it's cohesive. Well, no, agreed on that because it wasn't a true collaboration. It was two separate groups doing two separate recordings that then got mashed together. Exactly. And the producer uh, went to the extent of hiring a few outside musicians to kind of like smooth things into sounding like it was, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a weird album. But there's the, a, I think I think there's some good material there that could have been developed better. The other thing I want to give a shout out that he has worked on is a project called Li Liquid Tension Experiment. Yes. Which is effectively an instrumental supergroup made with three members of dream theater and if you're not familiar with dream theater oh. those guys are serious virtuosos absolutely and tony levin and so when you see the company he keeps you realize what an amazing player he is because he would not have been invited to be on something like that if he wasn't a virtuoso yeah agreed rob hit us with your basis uh, well keeping this uh you know in the same world of um of normal um, you know, there's a, there's basis like, is like guitar where there's a ton of people out there. Right. So, um, I tried to go from like, okay, who really made me love the bass as an instrument growing up that I heard. And it always comes back to Peter Hook. Um, nobody plays that sort of Ampeg high bass, um, like he does. And now he's doing his own thing with Peter Hook and the light where he's kind of stepped out and being, a, being a singer. But, um, you know, he had, he's had two other bands besides New Order and, and Joy Division. He had Monaco and Revenge, and he just worked on a record with uh, Wolfgang Fleur of Kraftwerk. Um, and he's starting to do some kind of other things now with that bass. But, you know, again, much like a lot of uh, other bassists, is that when you hear them, I think the mark of a good bassist is when you hear them, you know what record you're hearing right away. And even the absolute worst New Order records you can tell Peter Hook is not half-assing it. Um, and th the stuff on the Joy Division records is, is just really impressive because it, step it steps out of like the post-punk jagged edge of New Order and sort of gets into some really interesting new terrains. And then that first New Order record, 
uh, movement, it's his bass is almost atmospheric, right? It's it's almost ambient. Um, so that's where I went for that. So interesting thing with him is I read that he plays in that high register because when they first formed Joy Division, they couldn't afford decent amps. Yep. And so the only way to get his sound actually heard was to play in the higher register. Yeah. And it just stuck as his style. And you're right, Rob, it is so distinctive. Um, yeah. It's something I've only really come to appreciate in recent years. I mean, I, on this show before, I've expressed how in my teenage years, I was a huge metalhead. Yeah. Um, as my music tastes have grown beyond that, and I've started listening to other things and looking or, or listening to them with the ears of a bassist, that's something that very, very much caught my mm -hmm. ear. Well, you also can tell when you listen to him that he listens to other music besides the stuff he plays. Mm -hmm. um, that you can very much tell that he's out there listening to his contemporaries very much, right. especially in some of the later, later New Order records. And that high register, you know, not a lot of people were doing bass in the high register when he was doing it, too. And that's the other interesting thing. It's sort of like he almost accidentally fell into like this being distinctive. It's not like I set out to do this. Right. It's almost like I did this because this is why we had to do it. And this is what sort of happened. And it happened. And coincidentally, probably the only person on our list tonight that was accused of that uh, was a question for being the Yorkshire Ripper. Um <laughs> Him and Stephen Morris from New Order were both questioned and eventually released in connection to the Yorkshire Ripper case. Um, Amazing. Which is kind of funny. But um, yeah, and I think, you know, he is the only person in New Order that when you hear, you're like, that is the guy from New Order, right? Mm -hmm. As much as I love Stephen Morris as a, as a percussionist and stuff, he is the only sort of dis distinctive feature of that band. Whereas Joy Division, obviously, had Curtis's voice and then probably, you know, and, you know, being able to rise above a band and sort of have your own brand, I think, is also a big deal. Yeah, agreed. All right. So I am all about that bass. So oh, my, I know, right? So, so my pick, um, th this was another one. Okay. So first of all, let me back up to guitarist because I want to say that my... Uh, temptation here was to go like a hundred percent rush because after all this is the mount rushmore of rock. Uh, so, uh, get, i mean get out. i know i know i know i know and i have lived with the virtuosity of, of rush my entire musical life so i tried very hard to steer away from that being such an obvious choice so i didn't pick any alex's and i'm not picking getty so uh but i'm going something kind of uh near to that and my pick is chris squire from yes he is an incredibly melodic player you wouldn't he, he doesn't think of bass the way that bass players think of bass he thinks of it the way a chorister thinks of a melody line or a guitarist thinks of a, a counterpoint line. And I find his playing absolutely fascinating and incredibly organic. Um, and I feel like he approaches his bass parts like a composer, not just a, a bass player. Like he's there to contribute, uh, you know, something of significance to mm -hmm. a composition. He is very polyphonic in his approach. He doesn't just play the root of a chord or, you know, mirror what the guitar player is doing. He does his own thing that adds to the texture and the tapestry of the music that yes produces. Um, 
He's also a really great songwriter and a good singer. Uh, some of my highlights that I've picked are uh, there's a song called On the Silent Wings of Freedom, uh, which is on the Tormato album. A weird album, but it's got some great stuff on it. And he's got some just dynamic bass playing on that song. And another song from Tormato is called Onward, which is one that he wrote. And it's an absolute gorgeous piece. Um, there's Tempest Fugit from the Drama album, which uh, I remember hearing on the local rock radio station in uh, Central Florida in 1980 and just being incredibly blown away. I, I was still sort of on that becoming a Yes fan thing. And Tempest Fugit really is the thing that pushed it over the edge. And I was like, I have got to know more about this band. And the other one is one of the big epics, and that is Ritual from Tales of Topographic Oceans, one of my absolute favorite Yes albums. The one that a lot of people, even, even real hardcore Yes fans, find troublesome, find difficult to get into, find it bloated and over overblown, but I don't. I, I, I love every single second of that album. And uh, Chris does some incredible bass work on Ritual, just phenomenal stuff. But even if you go like past, so all of these are sort of like, um, you know, they're all sort of like album cuts. Even if you go to, they, they didn't have very many top 40 singles, but one of the ones that is probably the first top 40 single they ever had, Roundabout, has an incredibly complex bass part on it. So even when they're doing, quote unquote, a pop tune, he's laying down this amazing bass part. So Chris Squire, Chorister, songwriter bassist mountain of a man and a mountain of talent uh he's he's my bass pick can i give a shout out to my favorite chris squire moment absolutely so also from the drama album mm. does it really happen i almost mentioned that one holy crap that's that one is... of the that's one of the few times that he actually does a true bass solo the whole yeah. outro of the song is a chris squire bass solo and I, I remember one of my co-workers who really was the one who turned me on to Yes. He said to me, you've got to listen to this. I've got no idea if this is difficult to play, but it sounds incredible. So he played it to me <laughs> and I was sitting there listening and listening to everything he was doing. And I was like, yeah, this this is this is very difficult to play. Mm -hmm. I've tried. I have failed dismally, <laughs> but it's phenomenal. It's so good. And I think it really shows off his chops and his skill. Yeah, agreed. The drama album, I feel like, doesn't get enough attention. It's an incredibly uh, transitional album for them. You, you, you can't really make a connection to 90125 unless you've got that drama middle step. But it's also an amazing album in its own right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people dismiss it because it's yeah. got Trevor Horn on vocals. Exactly. And they don't see him as a true yes vocalist. Exactly. And Who I almost, almost put it in my bass category was Trevor Horn. Mm, but he okay. feels but he feels he feels like three or four different things he, he does very true and it was like well he could fit into bass but the other thing about trevor horn is his production career and how much that that distinctive sound that he had permeated yeah. into other records yeah so, and i was just gonna say if we added a sixth face to our mount rushmore and made it producers trevor horn could fit right up there because he yeah. he's done some of the greatest albums from the 80s and 90s and has a real distinct sound yeah. to his recordings so yeah. can we sure why not 
All right. Just on the fly. We're going to make him make him an honor. We'll make it the last one so that we've actually got some time to think about it as we're all talking about the rest. All right. We'll see what we can do. (laughs) Okay. So let's get on into the keyboardists. Uh, Anthony, what you got? My pick for keyboardist is John Lord of Deep Purple. So initially I started thinking Tony Banks from Genesis, whose work is amazing. Then I went on to Rick Wakeman, who, what I have heard, I've really, really enjoyed, but I'm not familiar enough with his work to justify it, uh, being on my Mount Rushmore of rock. And then I landed with John Lord, and everything he has done for me has been superb. His tone, that deep, rich Hammond organ, just wow, it, it adds a warmth to deep purple albums you listen to something like um child in time or you listen to burn and honestly i'm one of the few people who'll say this but i think marks three and four of deep purple were superior to mark two deal with it um (laughs) i said what i said but for me he's just he he's such an interesting keyboard player and i don't think he's as well recognized by a lot of people thinking about rock music as maybe he should be you know, from his earliest days right through his, his death, he was doing interesting things, whether it was rock music or whether it was his work on doing classical music and doing things like the concerto for group and orchestra, yes. which is absolutely mind-blowing. Yes, it I is. I think he absolutely deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore of rock. I wish he would have greater recognition, but that's life. So my pick, <laughs> John Lord. I love it. And I'm glad you uh, mentioned the concerto because it's a just a great, great piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was a very gifted classical composer as well yeah. as a rock music um, artist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rob. So um, I also thought a lot about this like, like Anthony did. Um, despite the fact how much I love, love almost everything Brian Eno has done and... Uh, there's a lot of incredible people. I was I was thinking about uh, Ann Dudley as well, who also has Ooh, just done nice. a bunch of really interesting stuff. Um, and I also wanted to try to represent as much diversity as I as possible. Um, Hans Zimmer, um, Howard Jones was sort of my dark horse as well. Okay. Um, and Jimmy Smith, this amazing keyboard organist guy who like literally has affected every hip hop record and soul record made. But I eventually settled, and it's pretty obvious, but I settled for Stevie Wonder. Oh. A couple reasons. First of all, he's Stevie Wonder. Um, And despite his great drum solo in, you know, (laughs) Summer of Soul. Summer of Soul, yeah. Yeah, despite that, um, his use of the synthesizer and keyboards Mm -hmm. completely revolutionized how R&B was done in the late 70s and 80s. And, you know, you hear all these, like, you hear the weekend or you hear Chromeo and you hear all these guys now, or, or even later Hall and Oates, they're all picking up what Stevie wonder was doing mm-hmm. and sort of carrying it away. Um, so there is that. And then, the, you know, he also gets points for being the only keyboardist name checked in Dr. Who, um, which is also important. And, um, you know, just the body of work that he did. I mean, Songs in the Key of Life. I mean, you could, if the only record you ever made was Songs in the Key of Life, you know, you could pretty much go to bed at night happy. Oh, yeah. Um, but just, you know, I never really, 
when I listened to the Stevie Wonder records, I never, and I always put Ray Charles too, because Ray Charles was like this as well. Yeah. Um, one, you know, they're his. And two, he completely changed how the public perception of those instruments are. Mm-hmm. And um, so there, Stevie Wonder. It's interesting that a number of uh, some of the iconic bass parts on Stevie Wonder songs are actually Stevie Wonder on a bass synth. Yeah. And not on a bass guitar like you think they are. Yeah. I think that's um, super cool. And I just, you know, his his approach to thinking about chords and structure and how that all fits within the traditional confines of music. Because, you know, a lot of the times it just, it was kind of an, af- an afterthought, you know? Mm-hmm. Everyone thought of like Little Richard or uh, Jerry Lee and, you know, how you use a piano and, and how you bring that into your music. And then you start thinking of Ray Charles, you know, like I said, and you start thinking of all these great rock keyboardists that are out there. And then you move into what we have now with Stevie Wonder, who's just iconic. And, you know, you can hear Stevie Wonder in Prince. You can hear Stevie Wonder in Jeanette, uh, Janelle Monet. You can mm. hear, you know, you hear him in like all these great records. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder, kids ask love your parents. It. Love it. I think that's a great pick. And for the love of God, go see Summer of Soul. <laughs> As we've said before, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal film. So who did you pick? I'm, I'm curious to see who you picked. Okay, well, you know, I went, uh, this was a tough one for me, just like guitarist was, because you can go in so many different directions. Um, and it was uh, it was sort of a temptation to go with some of the real rock synth players that are like the virtuoso players like the rick wakeman's you know that kind of thing that's that was my first thought but the more i thought about it i kind of backed off from some of those and i went you know i've done these kind of lists before and i mm-hmm. i'm gonna pick somebody for this one that i've never thought about before in this category and partly because he's not a synth player he's not an organ player he is a hundred percent a piano player okay and that is mike garson yeah, I think he is a genius. The first album that he ever played on with David Bowie, he he played on the second half of the Ziggy Stardust tour. Um, and the first album that he recorded on was Aladdin Sane. And there are three songs on that record that are like the most iconic Mike Garson piano part in his entire, I mean, he played with Bowie for decades and this first album has got three tracks that are just iconic. The first one is the title song, um, Aladdin Sane, where Bowie wanted a piano solo in the middle. And, uh, he was like, he tried a honky tonk kind of thing. And he tried a, a true classical kind of thing. And Bowie said, you know, the other day you were telling me about these real, avant-garde jazz pianist can you do something like that and he played in one take the the piano solo that exists on the aladdin sane album on that song which is one of the most insane piano parts ever put down on a rock and roll record a couple of years ago uh mike garson put together a a band called celebrating david bowie and they did a big tour and it was like past uh bowie band members with some guest stars doing like lead vocals and stuff like that and so i finally got to see in the flesh in his presence mike garson play the aladdin sane piano solo and i thought okay well i'm done 
that's pretty much all I need to see out of this show. Another song from that album is called Time, which has sort of like this demented vaudevillian kind of really weird piano part to it, which I absolutely love. And then the closing track, Lady Grinning Soul, is like the most velvety and lush piano part I think I've ever heard. And it is spectacularly beautiful. It's an incredible song. And I think that the song itself inspired Garson to just really lay down this amazing part. Um, Like I said, he played with Bowie for for a a couple of decades. So there are some other highlights later on in uh, Bowie's career, one of them being on the Earthling album, which was basically a techno kind of like drum and bass album. And you would not expect to hear an acoustic piano in that mix, but uh, Garson adds acoustic piano and does an amazing solo in a song called Battle for Britain. And then on uh, a couple albums later on Reality, uh, there's a, the closing track is uh, like a seven minute long, very uh, slow, sort of like a smoky jazz kind of room. And it's sort of, it's called Bring Me the Disco King. And uh, it's all piano driven with a drummer on brushes. And it's so, so, so good with a great vocal by Bowie. Um, and the only time that I know of that he actually played a, a true synth part was on the reality tour on Ashes to Ashes. Bowie said, you know, I would really rather have, instead of a piano thing, I'd really rather have a big synth solo in the outro. Will you do that? And uh, Garson, from what he said, was initially uncomfortable with that because he, it's just not something that he does. But he put together this part that I think that, Uh, Bowie's request made him think about playing a solo in a very different way. And, and I I love that. I think it's, it's the only tour I think that they ever did that. And I think it adds so much to that song. So Mike Garson, phenomenal player. And he's my pick for keyboardist. All right. So Anthony, I guess that's four categories already. So we're down to vocalist. No, that's three categories. I can't count. So that's three categories already. So now we've got vocalist. So, Anthony, I can't wait to know who you put on your Mount Rushmore. So for vocalist, I have picked Freddie Mercury. And I know he is a super obvious one to pick. Um, But I can't really go wrong with it. You can't. You listen to his range. I mean, his vocal range always was phenomenal and then on top of that you layer in his showmanship and his way that he works the audience and my other pick uh my backup pick or the other person under consideration for me was ronnie james dio who also has an amazing range and knows how to work an audience or knew how to work an audience so i mean you you can kind of see the the kind of front man i like right right it's it's got to have a lot of charisma and a lot of range yeah and freddie definitely had both um you know you look at the way he strutted and pranced around the stage you look at you know his his wardrobe and then he had the chops in his voice to back it up whether you're looking at something like bohemian rhapsody uh, which is a little bit of everything from a vocal perspective (laughs) or you look at something that's you know pure rock like i want it all or you mm-hmm. look at something that's more of a ballad, like um, Who Wants to Live Forever, which is almost a little operatic in places. I mean, mm-hmm. the man the man had it all. 
and you know he's obviously he passed away in the early 90s um and the world lost one of its greatest singers in my opinion and yeah. i 100% believe he's he's the obvious <laughs> choice for me for mount rushmore of rock but i can't think of anyone else i would rather put up there i really but can't the, the thing about obvious picks is they are obvious for a reason mm -hmm. there yeah. i mean freddie is unparalleled and I, I think in the heavy metal world, Dio is unparalleled. I don't think there's anyone else like Dio. Yeah, and honestly, there's even a little crossover in their voice. Uh, for, for a while, I had it in my head that Save Me by Queen was a track Dio sang on. Mm. Uh, not as a Queen song. I was convinced it was a Dio song or a Rainbow song. Right. And I went for ages trying to find this song, Save Me by Rainbow <laughs> or Save Me by Dio. And of course, it was Queen. It was Freddie. <laughs> but they they could do similar things with their voices when Freddie mm -hmm. wanted to do a little bit of vocal fry in the way that Dio did. He mm -hmm. could do it and he could own it and he could he sounded fantastic. Um, you know, I, I think those two for me are, are really up there as the greatest vocalists in rock for mm. freddie and heavy metal for dio for a reason yeah i never got the opportunity to see freddie uh but i did see ronnie uh when black well actually i saw ronnie quite a few times uh mostly with his solo band dio but i yeah. saw him with black sabbath on the mob rules tour and oh, wow. it was amazing i mean he came out and owned the audience from the moment he stepped on the stage. He was, I mean, he's a short guy. He's tiny, but he is so charismatic. He makes himself so much bigger by his just very presence on the stage. Amazing. That was two great picks. Okay, so Rob, I am curious to know where you went with vocalist. Oh, man. Okay, so in a world of vocalists, I mean it's really hard not to think of Freddie. Um, so I kind of knew that was coming. So I, I tried to step away from that, but you know, I thought about Nick cave. I thought about Leonard Cohen. I thought about mm. Donna summer. Ooh. Um, yeah. Um, I thought about the late great Ronnie Spector. Um, Oh, I know, but he could easily be up there. And this ladies and gentlemen is the first curveball of the podcast. And also the one that makes us completely different than any other podcast in the whole world. Oh, I can't wait. I'm kicking it old school. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Bing Crosby. Okay. Um, all right. So first of all, if you really want a complete understanding of the magnitude of Bing Crosby's career, read the two biographies by Gary Giddens about him. Um, you know, at a time when the music industry was segregated, He's going to all the bars in Harlem with Louis, Ander Louis Armstrong. And then he's taking Armstrong into all the mainstream cl clubs. He's like, well, I'm Bing Crosby. I'm not coming in if you don't let Louis in. Right. Mm -hmm. um, he also is the first um, multi, how do we put this? Um, Multi-format performer, radio, TV, film, all at the mm -hmm. same time. Right. Um We'll, we'll just okay, let's just start at the bare bones of the, of the career first. So, outside of all the records that he makes, which vary in different style from being, you know, going from being a traditional crooner to records with Rosemary Clooney and Louis Armstrong, and then later mm. he made, you know, 
um, records with Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we know about he, he was the he, he created the greatest song of the 1920s in terms of being significant, relevant, and brother, could you spare a dime? But then he turned around and did it in the 40s with um, White Christmas, which is still just hugely selling record, right? Yeah. Um, and the first thing he did, you know, he's a singer, he's in vaudeville, he's a huge vaudeville singer, he breaks away from vaudeville and steps into his own, and he says, no, wait a minute, the solo artist is important. This is why. So he does that in the early 30s, right? Then he quickly realizes, you know, my voice itself is a musical tool. How can I advance it? He's not like Freddie Mercury, where he's got this God-given voice that just does everything, right? So he perfects the microphone and the idea of using the microphone as an instrument, Mm. right? And starts investing his own money in microphone technologies and invents two or three different types of that things with that. Then he's not happy with his record deal. So he creates Decca Records. He helps create Decca Records and starts releasing records by his friends and him that he thinks need to be heard away from the system in the 30s and 40s. He's already seeing that the record label construct is going to be the musician not getting as much as the artist. He's seeing this in the 30s, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So then after inventing the microphone, he comes back, and we'll get to the World War II stuff in a minute. He comes back from the war. Um, he got tours of a couple different German plants, and he's like, what is this thing they're working on? And he becomes obsessed with um, technology and recording things. So he quickly realizes that they have the ability to record concerts and shows. So then, you know, he's like, hey, I'm doing radio six nights a week. I'm not going, I'm not getting home. My life's hell. It's cramped. Um, it's nuts. I want to record my shows. And he has a huge fight with Kraft about this. He sponsors the show. So he starts recording two shows on a, on a vinyl disc. And they basically would go into one office, play it, and it goes out all over the radios. Right. So he, he creates this idea of like cre- recording a concert or performance and using that and distributing it out. He follows that up by inventing modern um, magnetic tape recorder. He was one of the people that bought into Ampex. Um, he sort of founded Ampex and, and developed the idea of like recording technologies and artists order, owning their own masters. Then from there, he goes into the videotape. He's like, well, can we do this with video? And then if I am making a song, I could record it and release a video of it to show in movie theaters of me singing a song. You know, he never got it to where he wanted to see it, where it came to like full fruition. But he's tinkering with VHS uh, tapes in the in the in the fifties and sixties, right? And and that's interesting, you know. And out, then there's the influencing, you know, everyone from Sinatra to Perry Como to Johnny Mercer, um, Nick Drake, and, and Leonard Cohen, right? Um, which is huge. And then you know, during the war, he's touring like crazy. He's literally going. Um, nonstop for every single day of the war going around the world playing for armies, army boys, Navy boys, and and all that stuff. Right. So he quickly realizes after the war, he's like, wait a minute, if I go on tour, people will see money to see me tour. So he's like the, before artists used to do like a residency, like, you know, we're playing six nights in Boston. We're playing six nights in Cleveland. Right. He's like, no, I'm going to do all these different cities and do as many as I can. So he starts doing tours and he's like, what is my take on this? How much is the artist getting versus the box office getting? And he starts the idea of like the artist performing live is an event, right? Um, 
and it's and it's really fascinating because people are, ta are, pay are taking contemporary music outside of clubs and into concert halls and venues, which I think is really interesting. Um, and sadly, by the time you know he's doing, by the time he records with David Bowie, you know he's on the golf court dead in a week, and by the time that airs on TV, he's dead. So that that generation doesn't really get the bounce of him off the Bowie off the Bowie show, right? But just in terms of not necessarily musical talent, but being the first multimedia star and all these different things that he left on the industry after him, that's why I put him on my on my list. And as a vocalist, you know, he's fighting off like literally every decade he's fighting off somebody. He's fighting off Maurice Chevalier. Then he's got to fight off Sinatra. Then he's got, you know, Como coming. It's really interesting how resilient the career of Bing Crosby is and just how he's ahead, 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 ahead. So, yes, there's your first curveball of the evening. <laughs> and a hell of a curveball it is, too. Kids, ask your grandparents. Right. That's a good pick. And a good overview of his life and career. That's and great. crazy as hell. I apologize. Oh, well, that's okay. There's no need to apologize. All right. So for mine, there is a lot of obvious picks. Freddie, of course, being one of them. Robert Plant being one. Ooh. You know, the big, the big uh, dramatic front people, you know. But I, I kind of was noticing I don't have any women on my list. So I narrowed my vocalist, which is kind of kind of crappy. I mean, I shouldn't only be narrowing the vocalist slot down to, you know, just women because, you know, my pick for drummer could easily be Gina shock from the go-go's because I think she's phenomenal. Um, it wouldn't be Gina shock because it would be Sheila E instead. Um, but Ooh. I know exactly. Um, but so for vocalist, I, and you know, you were talking about versatility and um, you know, naming people like Donna summer and things like that. I think, the accurate answer for like the greatest pop female vocalist ever is Linda Ronstad because she can sing yes. any style of music like she was born to sing that style of music. Yeah. And her career covered country and rock and pop and Latin and jazz and everything, show tunes, everything. Yeah. And that documentary yeah. on her that came out a couple of years ago, really did her justice and i still you, haven't seen that and i really need to it's well first of all i mean if you ever she's one of the few artists that you have to own a box set from that box set that she did mm -hmm. is one of the best curated collections of songs by one artist ever that show their range and breadth okay but linda is not my pick really so, really? no 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 okay <laughs> so i'm gonna go straight to my roots and straight to one of the people that has inspired me the most and one of the people that I listen to more often than anybody else. And that is Ann Wilson of heart. I mean, powerhouse, an absolute powerhouse, but she wasn't just the powerhouse. She has an incredible range. She can do the, the really tender. She can do the overblown. She can, you know, hit those incredible dramatic, rock notes but then she can also sing this really tender ballad and she i think has at least in the 80s had the range that uh linda ronstad had she got offered the part of the lead in pirates of penzance and she turned it down uh, which is something linda did do uh but Anne was like i just cannot see myself doing that kind of thing because Anne is just a rock chick straight through mm -hmm. you know and um there are a, a ton of great 
female rock vocalist, Pat Benatar being my next pick, but Ann Wilson schools all of them as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So um, some of my highlights for Ann, uh, there's, it's not a, it's not a heart song necessarily. It was a cover that they recorded on their uh, greatest hits slash live album from 1981. And it was a new track and it was a uh, tell it like it is. And it is one of the most fiery uh, lead vocal performances that Anne ever gave. Um, so I, I've, you know, I've been a heart fan ever since uh, 1976 or whatever. And um, Anne has been part of my musical landscape forever. And I just don't think, especially in her heyday in the seventies, eighties and the nineties, I don't think anyone could touch her. And I also really want to quickly point out not just her uh, vocals, but songwriting too. Yeah. Uh, As a co-writer of the, like everything hearts ever done for 40, whatever years as a lyricist, she is amazing. She started out as just writing poetry and so much of uh, the heart lyric is based on her poetic sense. And she has a turn of phrase and is able to paint a verbal picture that few artists can. So, Ann Wilson, my vocalist. All right. So now we are down to the bottom, to the basement, to the foundation <laughs> of everything that rock and roll stands upon. And that is the drummer. So I'm very anxious to know who you guys picked. So Anthony, tell me who your drummer is. So when I was originally thinking about this, I was leaning towards Phil Collins. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you you look at him as a drummer. I I alluded to it when we were starting out. There's a front man who's also a drummer who was originally on my list. And candidly, I always thought he was a much better drummer than he was a front man. And he's a pretty good front man. Mm -hmm. But he's not who I landed on. Despite mm-hmm. the fact that if you listen to those early Genesis albums where he is the primary drummer, the Gabriel Eras, he's he's an absolute beast. Where I landed was Gavin Harrison, who, again, is not so well known outside of progressive rock circles. Um, he's most notable for being the drummer of the later era of Porcupine Tree, everything from In Absentia onwards. They actually fired their previous drummer when Gavin became available because they wanted him in the band that much. That's right. Which is pretty savage. And he's <laughs> since, yeah. since 2014, he has been one of three drummers in King Crimson as well. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. You, you watch any live video and they have three drummers, which seems excessive, but it works. But right. he, every time I see one of those videos, he is the best of the three. He has a very, very distinctive style. Um, lots of really fancy little fills. He's, he's to me, he's a virtuoso drummer who doesn't feel the need to show off, right? You, you listen to, I hate picking on these guys because uh, they are very, very talented musicians, but man, they show it. Um, and either of the Dream Theater drummers, Mike Portnoy or Mike Mangini, they, they, <laughs> they, they show off just to show off. Like, look at us. We're so amazing. And yes, you guys are, but this doesn't necessarily sound that great. Yeah. Gavin Harrison knows where to reel it in and where to go for it. And you listen to any Porcupine Tree song that has a breakdown and whew, just wow. And when you've got people like Bill Bruford and Neil Peart expressing admiration for your work, you know you're doing something right. 
Mm, yeah. Um, and for me, he is the cornerstone of everything that eventually made Porcupine Tree break through. And he, outside of that, he has worked with Iggy Pop, Gail Ann Dorsey, mm. um, Lisa Stansfield, Dave Stewart. Mm. I mean, he's had quite the the career. Manfred Mann's Earth Band as another one. Uh, he's just a tour de force that I think hasn't quite got the recognition that maybe he deserves. Some real drumming highlights that he's done for me from his Porcupine Tree work would include um, the start of Something Beautiful off of the Deadwing album, mm. Anesthetize, which is the 17-minute epic at the center of the Fear of a Blank pa- Fear of a Blank Planet album, which is he makes that track. I mean, he really does. And then finally, it's still new, but the first track off of the new album that's coming out later this year, Closure Continuation, that track is called Harridan. And you listen to it, and if you know his work, even if you didn't have the voice of Stephen Wilson, which is pretty distinctive in itself, you could listen to that drumming and go, yeah, that's Gavin Harrison. There's no mistaking it. And for me, there's just, that there's no drummer out there who is quite at the same level as him in terms of tone, in terms of um, sound quality, but also knowing what's appropriate for the track and, and what's actually going to sound right. That's a great, great pick. And not, not an obvious one. I would not have thought to, to include him on my list, but I think that's a fantastic, fantastic pick. Thank you. Awesome. All right. So now, Rob. All right, here we go again, kids. Um, so I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about Stuart Copeland a lot. Um, as was, you should. I was thinking about Fella Cootie. Um, kids, again, ask your parents. And um, I thought of Johnny Vatos from Boingo Boingo, who is one of the best live drummers I've ever seen. Mm. Um, but I ended up going old school again, back to the very, very, very beginning. And uh, the very first drummer inducted to the Drummer Hall of Fame, Gene Krupa. I was going to say, that must be Gene Krupa. Um, All right now. And, you know, I I was lucky enough during the pandemic to to talk to uh, Chris Franz from Talking Heads. And he literally spent 25 minutes going on about Gene Krupa. And it just made me totally reevaluate how I thought of him. Um, And so I guess we should explain Gene Krupa was an active drummer. I mean, he's a band leader as well, but also an active drummer from 1927 to 1973. His career is that long, which is insane, right? Um, He started, you know, he worked with Benny Goodman. Um, If you haven't, you've heard Sing, Sing, Sing. Even if you haven't, you've heard his drumming and sing. That thing is a beast. You listen to Sing, Sing, Sing and the drumming in that, that is a friggin' beast. That is like just, and, and for 1937, that is like the sound of like um, an entire country getting its machines going again, right? Um, then, you, then you move into his later career, and it's it's all still really solid drumming the whole time. He starts at a time, you know, basing all these guys are reducing their bands, so he's adding people. <laughs> he's like, the more drummers we have, <laughs> the better we are. And he starts doing these drum battles with Buddy Rich, who was also close to being on my list, right? Um, 
and these drum battles was like sort of the start of drum battles, you know, and drum battles are great, man. I love friggin' drum battles. Um, I just think they're like the best. They're, they're guitar battles are great too, but drum battles are like just a little, little different. Right. And um, so Krupa kind of started that. Um, he also started a music school, his own drumming school in the in the fifties and sixties. And uh, he had a very famous student uh, by the name of Peter Chris, um, also Jerry Dolan of the New York Dolls and uh, Doug Clifford of CCR, amongst other people. Those are sort of his big alumni. And um, just his style of drumming and his work ethic and the fact that he's always thinking about the craft of drumming. He doesn't have to, but he's like, you know what? If drummers have to haul more stuff on stage than the other person in the band, we need to make a standard drum kit that is light flexible and easy to move across the country. So he invents what's pretty much now the standard drum kit. And um, he also made it affordable because he realized that paying for musical instruments was really expensive. So he's like, how can we make the drum kit from being this big to this big, flexible, light, and affordable? Um, which is also a pretty big, big deal at the time too. So at a time when, you know, drummers were being in the background to guys on horns and, and pianos and things. He's making noise. Then in the fifties, when rock and roll's coming, he's still making these con these live concert appearances and he's out on the road and he's like, y'all need to put more, more drums in your race. He told Elvis, you need more drums in your records. Your records are great, but they're not perfect. They need more drums. He's telling friggin' Elvis in 1958, 1959, that he needs more drums in his records. Right. Then, um, he meets Ringo Starr when he comes to America, the one person Ringo Starr wants to meet when, when the rest of the Beatles want to meet, you know, Elvis and everybody else. Ringo Starr is like, I want to meet Gene Krupa. And so there, there's a lot of that going on with, with just like famous musicians wanting to see old musicians. But he has a certain reverence in the 50s and 60s that a lot of guys didn't have because that generation didn't really study the past musical heritage of the country like we do now. So there you go. And then eventually you have someone like Mike Portnoy who comes along and says, screw your standard drum kit. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. But, you know, for now, for now, the standard drum kit isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily work because the advances in technology and the way people want bigger, louder music. But you have to sort of start somewhere. Right. And you're basically high school beginner drum kit. That's the way to go. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah. candidly, I, I picked on Mike Portnoy because his drum kit is ridiculous. <laughs> it is unnecessary. Yeah. There's nothing he can do with that that you can't do with a much smaller drum kit. It's just there to look impressive. Well, oh, drummers, you know, drummers now really do want to look impressive because I think that they are undervalued necessarily. People don't look at the drummers as like they're in the band because they're in the back or they're behind the glass. And, you know, um, so I think some of them feel like the the more stuff they have up there, the bigger they're going to be seen. So. Well, I, I mean, candidly, drummers and bassists are not the members of the band who are ever going to get laid. It's it's the vocalist and it's the yeah. guitarist. Right. <laughs> you know, we're not sexy. <laughs> I guess it depends on the band and it depends on the band members. But <laughs> generally speaking, yeah, you're right. Um, but also the drummer is never going to be the one to get laid because the drummer's got the most shit to pack up at the end of the night. Now, if you're a big enough band to have roadies who do that shit for you, then you, you probably are going to get laid just because 
just because the, the the guitarist and the vocalist have already taken somebody back to their room and everybody who's still waiting is like, all right, well, I guess it's the bassist and the drummer. <laughs> yeah. That was a weird tangent that I just that was. <laughs> I, have overthought, I have overthought my potential to get groupies. I tell you. <laughs> all right. So uh, I got to say, um, I think that the reason that I sort of eventually became a drummer was because when I was growing up, I saw Krupa and uh, Buddy Rich on like late night talk shows and variety shows and stuff. And they were just monsters. I wouldn't necessarily name them as influences on my playing, um, but I think they did sort of like push me in the direction of really wanting to be a drummer. And the person that I picked for my Mount Rushmore drummer position is someone who was heavily influenced by both of those gentlemen. And, you know, I tried to not go super obvious. And I, like I said at the beginning, I tried not to fill every spot with Rush, but there is no choice other than the two people that you guys said and Neil Peart, because Neil Peart is the absolute goat when it comes to rock drummers. Uh, there's a lot of people who are influenced on my playing. Eric Carr was one. Um, certainly Stuart Copeland is one, even though I, I'm just nowhere near as technically proficient as he is. Um, but Neil really made me think of, you know, Peter Chris was a, a, a pounder. And, and in a lot of ways, Eric Carr was a pounder, too. And, and I learned to pound the drums from them. But Neil taught me finesse. He taught me to think in a completely different way about drumming. He taught me to think musically about drumming. He is, is kind of like Chris Squire in the sense that he approaches drumming in a compositional way. He's adding a musical part to a song that's being composed, uh, not just laying a beat down. Um, and I just think there, there's no one else that could touch him. So Neil Peart, sorry to be a hundred percent obvious and basic like that, but Neil Peart, man, that's, that's where it is. And, you know, I mentioned some other folks earlier. Gina shock is definitely on my list and Sheila E is just phenomenal. Um, and there's, you know, like my current favorite is Todd Zuckerman, who tours with, uh, it was a member of sticks for the past 20, whatever years. And he is incredible, but there's just nothing else, nothing else like Neil Peart. That's it. hundred percent done. John Bonham is amazing. You know, Keith Moon is a powerhouse and just an unbelievable talent. But Neil Peart is like beginning and end of the list for me. All right, so since we mentioned it at the beginning of the show, we're just going to throw a sixth face onto our Mount Rushmores and do our pick for greatest producer. Anthony, yeah, I, who did you come up with? I carved my faces a little too small, so I have space for one more. Ah. And the producer I'm going to pick is probably better known for his remixes than his production work, like his original production work. And that's Stephen Wilson. Uh, I thought that's where you were going. Yeah, and I I love his work with Porcupine Tree as as a front man. I love his solo work, but for me, he doesn't. He's he's not a an amazing enough guitarist, and he's not an amazing enough singer to make either of those spots on my Mount Rushmore. But 
as a producer, he's done some great work. He produced a few Opeth albums. He did some production work on a couple of Marillion albums, um, as well as on a solo album of their original singer and frontman Fish. Um, but where he has really come into his own in the last 10, 12 years has been remixes. And he started out around 2009, 2010 with some King Crimson work. I think he started out with Red and in the Court of the Kings, uh, in the Court of the Crimson King. But he's gone on to do Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Jethro Tull, Yes, Ecstasy, um, Gentle Giant. Um, Black Sabbath, Ultravox. I, I think he even did a Kiss album. I think he did Destroyer recently. And he's done some work for Tears for Fears as well. He is all over the place, going across genres, doing these amazing 5.1 surround sound mixes of these classic albums. And I think in doing that, he's a visionary. You look at the way Apple now are taking up their, their spatial um audio thing that they've got for airpods and that's basically what it is it's artificial 5.1 and it's coming to the masses and stephen wilson has been working on that for the last 13 14 years i think he's an absolute visionary in his production work and i think we're going to see him remixing a lot more absolute classic albums i think that that's an interesting pick because when you're talking especially about things like yes and crimson and and that sort of you know area of music his knowledge of that music is encyclopedic mm-hmm. and he obviously has a deep care for that kind of stuff so what he brings to those remix projects is this vast knowledge of what th- the best way to make those albums sound you know, I, I, yeah, I think he's brilliant. And even if you take those remixes out of 5.1 and look at the stereo mix that he does, I recently got yeah. the vinyl edition of his version of In the Course of the Crimson King. Mm. And wow, it it sounds amazing. It's full. The bass is just right. The treble is just right. Everything is mixed perfectly so that you can hear everything. Um, It just sounds so good. And I don't know awesome. anyone who has that level of precision. Yeah. Cool. All right, Rob. So I thought about this way longer than I needed to. <laughs> um, everything from now, Rogers and Dr. Dre to Pete Rock, sort of keeping it now. Yeah. Um, but then I'm like, oh, what about Brian Wilson? You know, and Brian, you mm. know, mm. and uh, Steve Albini, who I think is just tremendous. And then I had the dog fight, the neck and neck fight to the death. Um you know, we have to, we have to sort of, uh, and this is a nice segue into a, a, a show we're going to do later. We have to separate the artist and the work from the person, mm-hmm. uh, which of course brings us to the ugly tale of Phil Spector. Who, oh, there we go. Whose wall of sound records are astounding and he's great. He's not my pick, but he's astounding <laughs> and he's great. Um, and uh, just in terms of prolifically, affecting all these different artists across multiple genres. Um, but I eventually went, uh, again, I went weird, uh, and Giorgio Moroder, just because every wow. record he made, I love sonically, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't sound dated, right? Much like much like Wilson that Anthony mentioned, they don't sound dated. 
um, which I think is the the mark of a really great producer, right? Hmm. Um, but I just, you know, those Donna Summer records still sound great. His, his records with Daft Punk are incredible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I I just went with Giorgio Moroder. I didn't have a whole ton of time to really think about this either, but I'm like, you know, and, that, no. and we haven't really covered that era really much. That's true. And, you know, the thing is, disco is very much a disposable um, period of music looked at by a lot of people. But when you think of like what's sort of risen to the top and what people recognize as being um, interesting and different, a lot of it was in some way, shape or form shaped by Giorgio Baroder. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Rob, I thought about picking him as well. I, I thought think- that's wow. where you were going at first. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been listening to Number One in Heaven by Sparks yeah. um, pretty much on a loop the last few weeks. Yeah. And wow, it I mean, for them, it was such a change in direction. But it wouldn't have been possible without him and his input. Not only did he produce it, he co-wrote most of it with them. And it's just such a unique, interesting sound. And to your point, Rob, it doesn't sound dated no, at all. Right. It's interesting how I'm not sure a lot of people could take prog rock sparks and make them into disco sparks seamlessly. You know, um, they're just one of those bands that everything they do sort of has a seamless thing. But like at that particular time, the stretch of that record compared to the other stuff they made, it was like, whoa, what is this? You know, it's, it's like if Metallic all of a sudden made a bluegrass record, right? Um, and it just sounds great. The production's on it's great. He knows the thing he really knows well is what to do with the vocals. He really knows when to bury a vocal and when to make a vocal at the top of the record, which mm-hmm. I really loved about him, which is a thing that Spectre didn't do. Spectre just sort of like, I'm going to drown everything in these really gorgeous sounds. And Wilson, Brian Wilson does this thing where he drowns everything in these really beautiful melodies, right? But they, he, do, he doesn't want to try to play with all of it. Marauder goes in and plays with everything. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons I, I picked them. Yeah. Love that choice. No, good. Thank you. Y'all remember, I don't know if you're aware of this. Y'all remember in what year was it? Uh, it was 84, 83, 84. Uh, he did a new soundtrack to Metropolis. Mm-hmm. And it had all these like uh, various artists coming on to do each different track. And uh, all these uh, songs written by Marauder, and uh, it had a, it had a. Let's see, there was a Freddie Mercury track, there was a Pat Benatar track. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite John Anderson from Yes, John Anderson solo songs, uh, "Cage of Freedom," is from that album. Weird, weird project. So um, Metropolis got this re-release with this modern Giorgio Marauder soundtrack. And it was kind of bonkers, but it was fun. Okay, so uh, I, I don't, I don't know who to pick. I mean, this I just don't. I, I was so busy like talking about drummers and guitarists and stuff. I just didn't really think. So I am going. I've got two people that I just knee-jerk reaction top of my list. The first one is Eddie Kramer, who produced. Oh, I just thought of Martin Birch also. Oh crap! Yeah. Holy yeah. smokes. Martin, Martin Birch did a lot. Okay. So Eddie Kramer, who did a lot of um, the early kiss, the uh, Alice Cooper stuff. Um, his albums sound amazing. The other one I'm thinking of is Tony Visconti, who 
over David Bowie's, you know, 50 year career, uh, Visconti was there on and off for half of it, at least half of it, and saw him through uh, his glam period, through his earlier folk period, through the uh, blue eyed soul period, through the uh, he didn't do the pop stuff in the 80s. That was uh, other people, Hugh Padgham and uh, that kind of thing. Um, but then came back to him uh, through the 90s, uh, worked on Outside and all those great albums and up through uh, Next Day, which was in 2013 and the final album. So, I mean, it's it's he is just a, an amazing guy. He worked with a lot of other artists, too, most notably uh, Mark Bolin of T-Rex. Um but has done some incredible stuff and is currently or has uh, most recently worked on a 3D production of four of Bowie's albums where it's like it's not, uh, you know, true stereo. It's not even quadraphonic, but which was all the rage in the mid 70s. But this is a true, like immersive experience of sound. And I am excited to hear what these things have turned out to be so yeah i i would have been shocked if you hadn't talked about visconti <laughs> yeah and i think okay. there's there's a uh there's our connection in that he also produced the sparks album i think it might have even been yeah that's sparks true albums. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's true yeah so i just need stephen wilson to come in and remix one of those either right. the uh mm -hmm. the visconti one or the giorgio one and then we can tie all three of our producers <laughs> together very nice all right so that wraps up this week on modern musicology uh, rob where can folks find more of you on the intranets so you can find me on the intranets um at needcoffee.com in various ways shapes and forms uh, also, uh, I do a radio show on KDHX on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 Central, but streaming archive for two weeks each show at kdhx.org. And um, yeah. Awesome. Anthony. As usual, you can find me on Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, a Doctor Who podcast where we are watching our way through all of Doctor Who from 1963 until now. We have recently put out our episode on the Sea Devils from Season 9, and we'll be uh, releasing our episode on the Mutants uh, on uh, January 30th, so coming up in a week's time um, as of date of recording this. So you can find us Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Watchers4D. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, all the places where you can find good podcasts. We're there, uh, and that's Watches in the Fourth Dimension. All right. I have a little publishing company called Cosmic Press, and you can find that at CosmicPress.com. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. And you can also find my other podcast, which is dedicated to all things Star Trek. It is Earth Station Trek, and you can find us on Podbean and Spotify and all those places that Anthony already mentioned. We will be back next week with a special show uh, talking about two heavy metal classics on big anniversary years. We have Wasps, the Crimson Idol at its 30th anniversary and Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden at 40. So we'll see you again next week. Take care and have a great week.